0: All right, well, good morning. How's everybody? Super. Super. I just saw five people yawn as soon as I walked up here. That's not a good sign. All right, so you may um, remember my sermon earlier this year on tattoos. I commented that it was an ambitious subject and that from here on, I would choose simple topics for sermons. And now I'm in the middle of a series on Revelation, so I don't know what happened there. But this is the last time. Um, After this series, it's all going to be easy topics, easy sermons, the sort of things where you just tell people to be good, and you ramble about that for a while, and then that's it. All right, so today we continue our, I'll call it our unconventional study of the book of Revelation. For those who may be visiting, we are not working through this book verse by verse. Rather, we are... Looking at various themes that run through its many pages, the last three weeks we have combed through its 22 chapters looking for all that it says about Jesus and quickly discovered that it presents what we call a high Christology. His authority, divinity, resurrection, exaltation, and unique relationship with God Almighty are reoccurring truths that dominate much of the action in this book. Revelation begins with Jesus, ends with Jesus, and is centered on Jesus. <clears throat> and also in this study, we, um, for visitors, we are avoiding the urge to connect events described in John's vision to world events, whether past, present, or future. There is, of course, a natural temptation to interpret the symbolism of various passages to fit what we see going on in the world. And people have done this for centuries Um, But in so doing, they usually, this becomes a distraction, they usually end up missing many of the greater points of the book. They just get fixated on that kind of thing. And Martin Luther, I believe, is probably a good example of how this symbolism can be a distraction. He did not really care for the book of Revelation at all. In fact, he was quite skeptical about whether it was even inspired and wasn't convinced it belonged in the canon of Scripture. And he had two main complaints about it. The first had to do with all of its symbolism, which he found irritating and frustrating. You know, we all agree, but that doesn't mean that it's not inspired. Um, And the second complaint, this was rather fascinating to me, is that according to him, Revelation didn't have anything worthwhile to say about Christ. And if Christ isn't preached, he grumbled, then what good is it? And his exact words were, Christ is neither taught nor known in it. Therefore, I stick to the books which present Christ to me clearly and purely. And again, I was kind of surprised to read this. You know, we spent three weeks here observing its high Christology and found it pretty obvious, three 45-minute sermons on that. How could Luther say that it's a dud when it comes to Jesus? Well, probably I would guess that he was just distracted by all the passages in this book that are loaded with perplex with perplexing symbolism. He just didn't have the patience for it all. And I don't think this is unique to Luther. It's probably pretty common. If you were to ask the average Christian to name four or five books in the New Testament that presents an, uh, an exalted view of Jesus, books or letters that highlight his divinity and authority and glorification, you know, his triumph and unique unity with God Almighty, well, I think that few people would actually include Revelation. But I'd be tempted to argue that it might actually be the one at the top of the list, um, either Revelation or the Gospel of John. The fact that some of these great themes in Revelation have been overlooked, like Christology, is one of the reasons, as you know, that I felt compelled to do this series. So today we're going to look at another theme, and this one naturally follows the earlier one, While looking at the various verses that talked about Jesus, his authority and triumph and promised coming kingdom and so on, you will probably recall that numerous times in the past three weeks, um, when I would just stop and point out that these particular truths about him were there to strengthen and encourage the original readers, readers who were facing hostility for their faith from both Jews and Romans. Um, But even tougher times were ahead of them, and so they kind of needed to prepare for that. Christians living toward the end of the first century, they could expect harassment, rejection, confiscation of property, imprisonment, even death. But this revelation from Jesus to John provided them with both the comfort and the encouragement they needed to endure. Suffering is to be expected. But Jesus is worth suffering for, and if necessary, he is even worth dying for. And those who endure to the end will be richly rewarded. And so today, we will want to follow that particular theme. Look through the pages of this book to see what it says about enduring opposition and persecution. Now, um, real quick, there is this big debate, one that we will look at in the coming weeks, about whether the prophecies in John's vision were fulfilled during the time of the original readers or whether they were yet to be fulfilled at some point in the future. And one of the arguments for the first view, which is called preterism, is that if these prophecies are way off in the future, then what good would they have been to the original readers? Surely they pertain to their situation and what they were um, about to face. Well, this may actually be the case, and there are some things in this book that could support that idea, but this ongoing exhortation to endure that was given to these first century readers does not depend on that, um, that the events will happen in their lifetime. There is, of course, as we know, tremendous value in seeing the examples of others, observing their resolve to hold true to their convictions. Um, certainly can inspire others to do the same, even if those examples are in the future. So whatever the case, the message of hope and the exhortation to stay strong and not give up that we find here in Revelation applies to all Christians everywhere at all times. It is universal for every generation everywhere on the globe. And that message, again, that can be drawn from from the whole thrust of the book is essentially this. You've heard it. Regardless of how things may look at the moment, Jesus really is in charge. He rules over the kings of the world. He rules over history itself. He even rules over death. He holds its keys. And if death itself could not stop him, then nothing can. Nothing can stop Jesus from bringing about God's ultimate plan. The current hardship will come to an end. God's enemies will be defeated. All things will eventually be made right. A glorious kingdom is coming, promised to those who endure to the end. Therefore, stand firm, don't get discouraged, don't give up, don't betray your faith in Christ. And given the high Christology that we have seen in this book, we are left with no other conclusion than Jesus is worth suffering for and even dying for. And that message, again, applies to first century Christians and to Christians at the end of the age and to Christians today, whether in Iran, Iraq, North Korea, China, or here in America. And so today we're going to leave through its 22 chapters and see what we can find in regards to enduring persecution, either the exhortation to persevere or the promise of reward to those who are faithful or examples of the faithful. Okay, everyone on board with that? Even if you're not, we're still going to do it. All right, so let's get started. Now, for the most part, I'm not going to take time to read the passages that we'll be turning to. I'll do that a few times, but I'll assume that you'll be following along in your own Bibles and you'll have these verses in front of you. Our first example is actually found in the opening words of the book in chapter 1. So let's go ahead and turn there. John offers an extended greeting and doxology to the seven churches Uh, the original recipients of this book, and refers to the source of the prophecies he is about to share with them. And that source, of course, is Jesus. And in verse 5, John refers to him with three different titles, one of which is the faithful witness. Now, upon a casual reading of this, we probably wouldn't give that title all that much thought. But it's actually quite significant, and it helps to set the tone of what is about to follow in the coming chapters. Namely, that in the face of opposition and hostility, we have an example to follow, a model to imitate. Jesus, Jesus, the faithful witness. Even as he testified to the truth of God's kingdom and was true to it, true to his mission, true to the truth, true to the Father, so must we be. And he was a faithful witness all the way, as we know, to the point of death. And as we will see in the rest of this book, that will sometimes be required of believers as well. Now, in the same chapter, a few verses later, verse 9, we um, to the next point here, we learn that hardship actually has already come upon the followers of Christ, at least to some degree. It's It's interesting to note here that John refers to himself as a fellow member of God's kingdom with them and as a companion or partner in their suffering course, he's imprisoned at this time on an island, but this idea here is that this, um, you know, the idea here is that this shared suffering has served to unite believers together. These words of camaraderie help to prepare them for what lies ahead. Things are going to get pretty tough, but we are in this together. All right, moving on now to the next two chapters, we have the seven messages to the seven different churches there in the Roman province of Asia. Eventually in this series, maybe in 2023, we will take time to work through these seven messages verse by verse. Uh, But this charge to stand firm and not cave in, as we would expect, is a common exhortation to those churches in these two chapters. The first one is there at the beginning of chapter 2 in verse 3. The church at Ephesus is actually commended for their perseverance and willingness to endure hardships for the name of Christ. And in this, they had not become bitter or even weary. Now, we can't say for sure what their hardships hardships were exactly, but the fact that they were commended for not growing weary tells us that the oppression was not an isolated incident, but an ongoing situation. Next, we have the church in Smyrna. The exhortation there in verse 10 is pretty sobering. You are about to face some pretty intense suffering. Don't be afraid. Some will be imprisoned and face persecution. You need to stand firm. Be faithful even to the point of death. And Those who endure will receive the crown of life. So as you see there, especially sobering are the words, be faithful even to the point of death. Now, general, Generally speaking, this is not something that Christians say to each other today, at least here in the West, or that pastors say to their congregations. Uh, Moving on to the church at Pergamon um, in verse 13, we see that they are commended for not remat. These folks, too, are also commended and for not renouncing their faith in Christ, even though the temptation to do so would have been great given the martyrdom of Antipas. And we don't know who he is, only that he was a faithful witness who lived in their city and he had been put to death for the cause of Christ. Upon news of his death, as you think about this, it would have been natural to cower back in fear, abandon the faith, um, and enjoy relief from um, any terrifying threat that might be coming. But they did not do this, and for this Christ praised them. Jesus commends the next church as well, Thyatira, for their perseverance there in verse 19. And now to skip ahead to the church in Philadelphia in chapter 3. Jesus commends them as well in verse 8 for not denying his name, even though, as he acknowledges, they had little strength. Um, We don't know what that means. Perhaps they were a small church lacking resources. Whatever their weakness was, it did not keep them from remaining true in the face of hardship and opposition. And this, of course, serves as an example for other churches that may be lacking in some way. All right, let's now move forward to the section where the seven seals are being opened. We have two examples here. The first one is in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. When the fifth seal is opened, John sees under the altar those who had been martyred for the name of Christ. Their blood, uh, they cry for their blood to be avenged. To this they are told, not yet. For there are more fellow servants who will join them in death, and once the number is completed, then the blood of all the martyrs will be avenged. So like many of the other passages we'll be looking at, this one too prompts many questions. We aren't exactly sure what's going on here. We don't know who these martyrs are, why they were martyred, or who martyred them. One popular suggestion is that this could be referring to saints in the Old Testament, Prophets, for instance, who were killed for their warnings and and, um, admonishments, and that uh, those who will be added to their number are referring to the faithful followers of Christ, who, like them, will be martyred for holding true to the word of God. In chapter 7, after the sixth seal has been opened, we have from verse 9 to the end, a section describing a worship scene in heaven involving a great multitude in white robes, In verse 14, we learn that this multitude are those who have come out of the great tribulation, implying, of course, that they had suffered martyrdom. It has been suggested that this multitude, too many to count, uh, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, represents that complete number of martyrs that was referred to um, in the previous passage there in the previous chapter. And this seems pretty, you know, quite plausible, given that they, like the earlier martyrs, are identified as those who received white robes to wear, robes cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Whatever the case, it is actually quite impressive that such a large number of Christians have proven to be faithful even to the point of death. Now, it is important to note that these martyrs are not cleansed by the shedding of their own blood. I think we all realize this. Like all Christian believers, they are cleansed only by the blood of the lamb, though it is rewarded, martyrdom, as we see in verses 15 through 17, martyrdom has no merit in itself in regards to our salvation. We cannot do anything to earn God's favor or acceptance, including that of sacrificing our own lives for him, because this is always, we must remember it's Christ alone and in him only. All right, let's now jump ahead to chapter 12, as mentioned in the previous sermon a couple weeks ago. This is a tricky chapter to navigate. Uh, It seems that the vision here kind of hits the pause button, if you will, and takes a moment to explain the cause behind all of the hostility against the church. The symbolism of John's vision here portrays a long, ongoing cosmic war in the unseen world between the kingdom of God and the domain of Satan. Although the crucial battle has been won, as we have talked about, the adversary continues to unleash all he has. And in his time remaining, he directs his rage against the faithful, as we see in verse 17. So his days, we've talked about this, they're running out. And as a result, he is kicking and screaming and biting and spitting and fighting right up to the bitter end. But his doom is sure. Now, due to the events described in this chapter, the time period of this hostility, as as intense as it is, that's being referred to here, probably extends from the birth of the church, the day of Pentecost, to the return of Christ. The devil, he's been kicked out of heaven. He is quite unhappy about that. The chapter speaks of the arrival of the Messiah. The devil's quite unhappy about that as well. And he is unhappy that he can't seem to destroy or defeat this Messiah. He knows what all this means. Verse 10 tells us what it means, that the kingdom of God is breaking forth and nothing can stop it. And so, as we see in the last verse of this chapter, he is enraged and he goes off to make war against those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And again, this explains the reason for the hostile persecution that the Christians are are facing and why things will get worse before they get better. Which brings us to the verses that immediately follow. They're at the beginning of chapter 13. The rising up of a great beast who is empowered by Satan himself. A beast who, the, the, the chapter there tells us, makes war against the saints, beheading all those who refuse to worship him. So chapter 12, while it might seem rather dark, is actually intended to offer encouragement. The intense persecution that is portrayed in the chapters that follow, 13 and 14, you know, that's pretty dreadful. But verses 10 and 12 of chapter 12 helps the reader to keep everything in his proper perspective. And the implied message there is basically this. If I can just, you know, give you the overview of it. Regardless of how ugly things may get, again, Christ is in charge. The devil... We need to just realize he's throwing a hissy fit. And as a result, things will get broken. This is the implied message. He knows his time is short and he's not going down without a fight. People will get hurt. Some, even God-fearing believers, will die. But his doom is sure. Don't give up. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Christ is worth suffering for. And those who endure to the end will be richly rewarded. So that's basically the gist there of chapter 12. And take special note of the last part of verse 11. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. You know, what a thing. What a thing to have said about you. May that be said of us. This then brings us to chapter 13, where the beast, whoever it is, whatever it is, is ruling over the world and virtually everyone everywhere is pledging their allegiance to it. For today, we're going to, you know, just ask that we set aside our curiosities about who or what this beast is. We'll probably talk about that in the coming weeks. But the main point now is that this beast is extremely powerful. He is empowered by the devil himself, and essentially all the world powers have aligned themselves with it, joining forces to advance an agenda that includes the elimination of the righteousness of Christ and thus the people of Christ. uh, true totalitarianism. In verse 7, this beast is given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. It's a sobering verse. In verse 9, we see that those who truly belong to Jesus, they're just not going to budge. And they will not give him or it their undying allegiance. And because of this, they are about, you know, uh, they are given some sobering words here to think about. And essentially, those words are don't be surprised if you face imprisonment. Don't be surprised if you face death. And then these words this calls for patient endurance, the faithfulness. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Did everyone see that? Did I give the verse that? Verse 9. And the same exhortation is given in the next chapter in 1412. The very same words this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. You know, these expressions that you see throughout the book of Revelation, they should just like be underlined or highlighted because they stand out. And and again, they apply, you know, to all of us. That's why they're here in John's vision. And then at the beginning of chapter 15, in verse 2, John in his vision sees those who had been victorious over the beast. They were victorious in the sense that they refused to yield to him. That is, they didn't. He did not get his way with them, even upon the threat of death. They would not compromise. As faith witnesses, their deaths testified to the truth that Christ is the only one who is worthy of worship and allegiance, not the beast, regardless of how powerful and mighty he might appear to be. So the message here is, you know, do to us what you will. But it won't change the fact that there is a king of kings over you and the day will come when you, when you will answer to him. The next five passages that we want to take a note of come from chapter 16 through 19 and they all deal with the same thing. Judgment has come upon those who have persecuted God's people. This is where things take a turn in the book and the blood of the martyrs has now finally been avenged. So let's take a look at them. In 16, chapter 16, 5 through 6, Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. Then in chapter 18, starting at verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. Rejoice, saints and, pro- and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone, throw it in the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players, and trumpeteers will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bride and bridegroom will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and the saints and all who have been killed on the earth. So there's rejoicing here for this um, blood being avenged. And then in chapter 19, the first two verses, after this I heard what sounded like a roar of the great multitude in heaven shouting, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke of her goes up forever and ever. So believers have been tried and have been executed in the world's courts. But it is the world that is really on trial here before God. And their day of court has now come and it is a day of reckoning. Wrongs that have been made, wrongs that had been done to the saints and um, wrongs had been done to the saints and these wrongs are now being made right. Those who shared in the persecution of God's people must now answer for that. Vindication has come. God will avenge the blood of his servants. And this is actually an ongoing theme through the entire book of Revelation. Now, we are told, as you know, throughout the New Testament, we've talked about this before, very, very clearly, very specifically, and we saw it this morning in the Christology reading, that when we are persecuted for the name of Christ, we are not afforded the option of seeking retaliation, but instead we are instructed to leave the matter in God's hands who will judge all things justly in his own time. So it is here in Revelation where we see the promise of this avenging being fulfilled. Since God is by nature absolutely just, evil must encounter the full weight of his disapproval of it, namely the punishment of those who are responsible. And this punishment serves, therefore, as the vindication of those who, following the example of Jesus, are faithful witnesses. That God will vindicate those who gave their life rather than betray their faith is absolutely certain. Did a bomb just go off? It's the air show? Next year, I'm going to write a letter telling them to cancel it so we don't have these interruptions. We know how that works because <laughs> see how well it works? Just the very thought of it. All right. And this, this, is exactly what transpires in the rest of chapter 19, this vindication. So stay with me here. In verse 11, Jesus abruptly charges into the scene. We looked at this passage before. He's coming from the clouds of heaven in power and glory to wage war against those who have attacked his followers and to judge them accordingly. That's the reason for this. The section there, it's quite colorful, dramatic. Again, we've talked about it before. The beast and the false prophet, they are captured, condemned, thrown into the lake of fire. The great rulers of all the nations that were in league with the beast, they are killed. Their bodies are discarded, devoured by the birds of the prey. So this represents, you know, utter, not just utter destruction, but also um, utter dishonor. Language like, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Of course, this depicts an ultimate crushing and destruction. Believers who remain true in the face of suffering see at last their vindication. Those, however, who betrayed the faith must now deal with their regrets and face the consequences. In chapter 20, moving on, we now see the reward of those who are faithful to the point of death. Those, quote, those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus. So in verses 4 through 6, they are resurrected. They reign with Christ for a thousand years. In the verses that follow, the devil, death, and hell are all thrown in the lake of fire where they join the beast and the false prophet. And after this, the wicked are also judged and, and they too are sent to the lake of fire, which is also referred to as the second death. So the universe has now been purified of the curse, its effects, Rebellion against God is no more, potential for future rebellion is no more. And so it is time to start afresh, as we see in the last two chapters. And the final mention of anything relating to that of enduring persecution is found here in chapter 21 of verse 7, where a promise is given to those who overcome. Essentially, they will inherit all the blessings that are described in, the, in these last two chapters. And specifically, in the verse there, they will enjoy a special relationship with God, the Father Almighty. And there is no higher honor, no higher relationship to ever enjoy or aspire to than that of being in a father-son relationship with the one who sits on the throne. And in light of the whole context of this book, we can assume that the overcomers referred to in this verse are those who refuse to compromise their faith or their testimony of Jesus under threat of hardship, including, if necessary, imprisonment and even death. Okay. so how does any of this relate to us? I mean, much of it seems a bit irrelevant. After all, we aren't facing the guillotine, at least yet. Um, that may be so, but we are probably cowering away from taking stands for Christ every day. And the warnings and exhortations and examples here in Revelation would certainly speak to that. Um, the fact is, conflict with the world is inevitable for anyone who strives to live by God's righteous standards. So, when you think about this, I, you know, I think there's this common idea, you know, people imagine that when persecution comes, It will look like a scene in some movie, you know, deny Christ or die sort of thing. A heroic moment when the spectators just watch in awe. But for us here in the West, that sort of scenario is unlikely, at least in the near future. For us, the conflict will most likely be the result of taking a stand for the righteousness of Christ. And the ramifications won't be the guillotine, but getting canceled and silenced kicked out of the hip and trendy circles, could involve heavy fines, loss of freedoms, lawsuits, and the like at some point. Speaking out against evil in our culture and living out those convictions about Christ's righteousness is where the flashpoint will be for most of us, at least currently. And here we might remember the beatitude of Jesus. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. So when you take a stand for righteousness, you take a stand for Christ. And we have opportunities for that every day and yet even in this we often cower away and we need to realize that for the most part we are not persecuted for our beliefs but for acting on them big difference generally speaking you know nobody cares about our teachings our worship what we do on sunday mornings our doctrines and that sort of thing what gets us into trouble is when we live out our beliefs and teachings and worship and doctrines The righteousness that Christ preached and demanded his followers to live out is a righteousness that the world despises, rejects, and hates. And so conflicts are inevitable. And the Apostle Paul, speaking from personal experience, told us that anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted just by living a godly life. And Peter said the same when he warned us that we can expect to suffer for, quote, doing good. So, the more depraved the culture is, the greater the conflict, the greater the resistance, and the harsher the backlash toward those who refuse to go along with its depravity. So, though it may be hard for us here initially to connect with the events that are described in John's vision, we should be able to look beyond that and see the underlying truths and principles that are being advanced. Those who stand for Christ can expect to suffer. That suffering could get intense. And we need to patiently endure and stand firm. He is in charge. He will bring about God's perfect will to its completion. Nothing can stop that. And those who persevere to the end will be rewarded. Christ is worth suffering for. Josh? Thank you, Pastor Wendell, for your obvious hard work and preparation in this sermon series, I know we're looking forward to, to hearing the rest of it going forward. So let's uh, stand up together, and for the rest of us, Jesus is indeed worth suffering for, he is worth dying for, and he is worth living for. So as it's written in 1 Thessalonians 1.12, let's go out from here and live our lives in such a way that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in us and us in him according to the grace of our god and the lord jesus christ amen so go forward live boldly for the sake of christ and love each other well